Thank you. All right. Hi, my name is Marlene Mulwike, and I grew up on the other side of the state, and hold on. Uh, yes, it is. There we go. And that is my childhood church that I grew up in. And when I was growing up, one of the pastors at this church always told a corny joke at the end of the service just before the benediction. So one Sunday when I was about 10 years old, I was sitting in a church service, it was coming to an end, and predictably, the pastor got up and he told his joke. And I still remember that joke today because it is seared in my memory because of what happened after he told it. So here's the joke. The joke is, what happened when the elephant sat on a grape? It let out a little whine. Badoosh. Okay, so right after my pastor delivered this punchline, there was noise and commotion coming from the back of the church, and we usually sat up front, so I turned around, and there was this middle-aged woman who was making a lot of commotion as she was pushing her way down the pew, past all the people, and trying to get to the aisle. And when she got to that aisle, she stomped to the end of it, and then stopped at the door, turned around, and started screaming at the pastor. She screamed, heretic, heretic, you're a heretic. How dare you tell a joke in church? This is sacrilege. You're going to hell. Now, to his credit, all of us, well, to his credit, the pastor stayed calm. All of us were going, <gasps> and um, the pastor stayed calm, and he just looked at her, and he very coolly and calmly said, I hope you have a great day. God loves you. She responded, heretic! And then she turned around, stomped out the door, and we never saw her again. Now that was the first time I ever heard the words heretic and sacrilegious, and right now we're going to take a look at what those words mean because they are an underlying theme in the Bible passages that we will be looking at today. So, per Merriam-Webster's dictionary, there we go. A heretic is someone who holds a religious belief or opinion that does not agree with the official church position. And I'm not quite sure what our official church position was on jokes at the time, but I'm pretty sure that our pastor didn't break it. Uh, sacrilege is gross irreverence, which is gross disrespect toward a sacred person, place, or object, and when it's done verbally, it's called blasphemy. That's what the woman was accusing the pastor of, was blasphemy. When it's done toward a place or an object, it is called desecration. So, what that screaming woman was doing in church that day was she was drawing a line in the sand. And that line represented her assessment of what is acceptable and what is unacceptable. What is heresy and blasphemy and what is not when worshiping God at church. And this woman's behavior was actually motivated by wanting to protect that line in the sand because she actually wanted to protect God. Now, if you think about it, most of us have probably drawn our own lines in the sand regarding what we think is acceptable and unacceptable when it comes to worshiping God. For example, in my childhood church, all of our worship music was played on either a pipe organ or a piano. But when I got to high school, we got a new worship minister, and he one day brought in a gasp guitar. And then the next week, there was a saxophone. 
And then a few weeks later, there were drums. And once the drums came in, that was it. Um, you could see that lines had been crossed. And you could just look at people's angry faces. Lines were crossed. And unfortunately, sadly, that worship minister did not last very long at the church. Um, another line in the sand involved the way we dressed. Because in my childhood church, every Sunday, you were dressed up. We're talking high heels, dresses, suits, and ties um, for the men and the boys. Um, and as a result, when I was a young adult, and I attended a church with a casual dress code for the first time in my life, I completely wigged out. I, I looked up, I'm like, oh, the worship team is wearing blue jeans and, and sneakers. And then this whole family came and they sat in the row in front of us. And I went, oh, the mother is wearing a sweatshirt and shorts. And I leaned over to my husband and I said, John, that doesn't seem right. Do you think God allows this? Now, Clearly, I'm cool with it. Now, these are actually black jeans. I don't know if you could tell. Um, <laughs> now, the point I'm making here is that a lot of things that are considered normal and acceptable in churches today, things we even take for granted and consider normal at churches today, casual dress code, contemporary worship, even the ability to incorporate a little humor in what you're saying in a church, a lot of these things were completely unacceptable to many people, many churches, just a few decades ago. And for a lot of people, these things were even considered crossing the line into heresy and blasphemy. And Bible verses were thrown around to back up these claims of heresy and blasphemy. So today we're going to talk about what happens when lines in the sand are crossed regarding what we believe is acceptable to God and what is not. And that is what our scripture reading is all about. Our scripture reading is Matthew 12, 22 to 37. It's right up here and I will read it to you. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished, and they said, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Oh, hold on. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions without first tying up the strong man? Then his house can be plundered. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. 
for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Good people bring good things out of the good stored up in them, and evil people bring evil things out of the evil stored in them. But I tell you that people will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Okay, that's a lot to unpack. So we're going to take a look at these verses a few verses at a time. I'll make some observations, draw some conclusions, and add some practical application. But before we dive into all of these verses, I'm going to share a bit of first century context about blindness because it plays a significant role in how we understand this story. So can I get a show of hands here? How many people here personally know somebody who is blind? Okay. It's a small number of people, okay? And that's what I expected because relatively few people in this country are blind. In fact, according to the National Federation of the Blind, only 2.4% of the U.S. population is what you would call visually impaired. That means either completely blind, almost blind, or people who, when they wear glasses or contacts, still have trouble seeing. That's a relatively small percent of the population. And the reason why bl uh, blindness is relatively rare in our country is because of modern medicine, which makes it possible to easily treat conditions that cause vision loss, like cataracts and glaucoma. However, if you look back in history, going blind was far more common even just 100 years ago because of a condition called trachoma. Now, according to the World Health Organization, trachoma is an eye infection that is caused by an extremely contagious bacteria that spreads very quickly through personal contact and also through flies. They can pick them up and um, pass them on to you. Now, trachoma is no longer common in the U.S., and if you somehow manage to catch it, all you would need would be some antibiotics, some prescription eye drops, you'd be fine. And as a result of these medications, trachoma, probably nobody has even heard of it. Um, it is the most preventable cause of blindness. However, outside of the United States, almost 2 million people are blind from it today because of the way that it spreads quickly in areas that are crowded, have poor sanitation, and are lacking in modern health care. Now, people who live in these developing countries tend to catch trachoma over and over and over, and every time they catch it, what happens is your eyelids swell up and they start scarring on the inside, and it makes your eyelashes curl in and start scraping the surface of your eye. And when it scrapes the surface of your eye enough, what happens is you start losing sight and you eventually go blind. And that is still going on all over the world today. The reason I'm sharing about trachoma is because it is one of the oldest diseases in the world, and the ancient Greek, Roman, and Egyptian, and even Chinese cultures all have documented evidence of trachoma going all the way back as far back as 2700 BC. This is one of the oldest diseases in existence. And in fact, that picture right there is an Egyptian picture of a blind harpist from 1400 BC. Uh, 
it was a huge problem in Egypt. And in fact, in more modern world history, there was a French doctor named Tortoiseau Granger. He visited Egypt in 1745, and he described it as the land of the blind because he said he encountered just that many people who were blind from trachoma. That is not that long ago. So, needless to say, this illness, trachoma, was most likely a major cause of blindness back in first century Israel. In fact, blindness in general was probably fairly common, more so than it is now, because of trachoma being so contagious, plus people just losing their eyesight from accidents and from genetics and aging. Okay, so blindness was a much bigger deal in first century Christian, or first century, the first century world. And I think this sheds insight into what Jesus stated when he launched his ministry and went public with it. Jesus first announced his ministry at his local synagogue in Nazareth. And in Luke 4, he stood up in the synagogue and he read the following verses from the scroll of Isaiah. He read, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. That's in there. To set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, Jesus was most likely referring to both physical and spiritual sight, because you can be spiritually blind. But I want to make a point that Jesus specifically mentioned the blind and made it a part of his stated ministry right from the beginning. Now, another important piece of first century contextual information involves ancient theories regarding how our vision works. Two of the popular theories were intermission and extramission. Intermission was advocated by Aristotle, and he believed that light enters into our eyes and enables us to see things, and that's how we know eyesight to work. But Plato advocated extramission, and this theory uh, was that they believed that the Greek gods had placed an inner light inside of our bodies, and that light would shine out of our eyes and enable us to see things. And we can see this is a, at the very bottom, if you can read it, this is a statement from uh, Plato's writing. For they, the Greek gods, caused the purifier within us to flow through the eyes <clears throat> in a smooth and dense stream. Now, according to Dr. Chad Hartsock, this belief in extramission was very common in the ancient world, and it even shows up in the Sermon on the Mount. In this verse, the eye is the lamp of the body, right? It gives off light. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light, but if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, Hartsack further explains that because blind people were thought to be full of inner darkness, it was believed that their blind eyes were emitting or giving off this inner darkness to other people. People thought that blind people were giving them what they called the evil eye and cursing them, okay, because this darkness was being emitted everywhere. And they believed that blind people's eyes were evil and that the character of their eyes reflected the character of their dark souls. And that explains the theology of blindness that we see in John chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples, this is his own disciples, asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? 
As you can see from this passage, blindness was closely linked with personal sin. The blind were believed to be spiritually dark on the inside and inherently personally sinful in a deeper way than people who could see. Okay, our third contextual information point, according to New Testament professor Davidson Raza Firavoni, he states that Jewish writings around the time of the New Testament demonstrate that the blind and lame were excluded from worshiping God at the temple in Jerusalem. And the exclusion grew out of the Jewish understanding of two Old Testament texts. And this is the first one. This is where God is giving Moses requirements for priests serving in the temple. And we're going to go halfway down to the underlined part, for no one who has a blemish shall draw near one who is blind or lame. No descendant of Aaron the priest who has a blemish shall come near to offer the Lord's offerings by fire. Now this command only applied to priests who were making offerings at the temple. But what happened is Bible commentators agreed that the command was broadened to apply to all blind people, all worshipers who showed up at the temple because of the next Verse 2 Samuel 5, verses 7 to 8. This is about David when he took over Jerusalem. And um, nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would smite the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, and this is key, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Now, in today's translations, the house means the house of the king, the palace, okay? But there was a translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint that was widely read in first century Israel. And that version of the Bible translated it to read, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house of God. And so it was interpreted to mean that blind and lame people could not come into the temple. And there were even some extreme Jews, um, very, very, very ultra-conservative, who felt that blind and lame people should not even be allowed to enter Jerusalem at all because they were impure and polluted, morally polluted. Now, this was clearly a line in the sand that the Jews got very, very, very wrong. Because as it turns out, God cares about blind people. And he built promises into the Old Testament for them. Uh, if you take a look at a couple of these verses, Leviticus 19.14, you shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. Deuteronomy 21.18, cursed be he who misleads a blind man on the road. So to quickly summarize this first century context that I just provided, Point one, blindness in first century Israel was far more common than we experience today. Blindness was also viewed as an outgrowth of inner personal sin and darkness. And then third, blind people were excluded from entering the temple, and this was not God's intention. And I do think it's really neat that God, because people couldn't come to him, he came to them. All right, so with all of that context being said, now we're going to dive into our Bible passages for the week. We'll start with Matthew 12, verse 22. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. And all the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? So a couple things to note. First, we don't know who they are. 
okay? It doesn't say who they are. However, according to Thayer's Greek lexicon, the Greek word used for brought means it is used repeatedly in Matthew to describe when someone, quote, brings or leads someone to a person who can heal him or is ready to show him some other kindness. So the blind and mute man was therefore led to Jesus by unknown people who hoped that Jesus might heal him or show him kindness. So obviously those people must have been the blind man's, what, family, siblings, friends, parents. And the good news is Jesus healed him. And this was a double miracle. It was healing of his sight and his blindness and, you know, and his, a demon was cast out of him as well. This was double cause to rejoice, and that's what the people did. Now, the verse says the people were astonished. That verb for astonished can also mean to be out of one's mind. And so Bible commentators point out that another way of saying the people were astonished would be to say the crowds were going crazy nuts over what was going on. They were totally wigging out and going, oh my gosh, look at this, he just double healed this guy. It's amazing. And they were thinking, hey, is this maybe the Messiah who will free us from the Romans? Okay, next verse. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, which means Lord of the Flies, that's the literal translation, uh, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. So after this amazing double healing miracle, Jesus has clearly landed on the wrong side of the Pharisees' line in the sand. The Pharisees felt Jesus' behavior in doing this amazing miracle was not acceptable to God, who they were actually trying to protect. But in their zeal to protect God and their Jewish faith, they ended up doing two things. Number one, they accused Jesus of heresy, of being on the same team as Satan. And in the account of this story in Mark's gospel, they actually accuse Jesus of being possessed by Satan. This is an accusation of sorcery. It was a very serious accusation that carried a death penalty. The second thing the Pharisees did is they cared more about their line in the sand being crossed than about the broken human beings who Jesus had just ministered to in this situation because Jesus ministered to more than just that blind, mute, demon-possessed man. He also ministered to that man's loved ones who led him to Jesus. Now, to help you better understand what I'm talking about, right now I'm going to share some first-hand information about what it's like to be going blind. I have a friend who has a progressive degenerative eye disease. During adulthood, she has lost most of her sight. She has very little of it left. She says this makes life very hard. She can no longer drive around her four children. As a result of her loss of eyesight, she explains, quote, I'm always receiving. I can't just go someplace and buy a birthday gift. I can't just go to a doctor's appointment. I always need to set up a ride. And since the pandemic, she says, Uber is not very reliable. So it creates a lot of stress when I need to get someplace on time. Now, people we know offer rides, she said, and we appreciate them, but it's hard to know that I am a ministry. Think about that if you know that you are a ministry to others. She says it's hard to always be receiving. Now, really sadly, this friend of mine has two teenage sons. They have inherited the same genetic eye disease. 
Their field of vision has grown smaller over the past several years and age 17 now. They only have a five to seven degree window of vision left. Barring a miracle, they're expected to go completely blind within the next several years. And they're really, really neat boys and just really, really amazing, brilliant boys. And it's hard to watch this. My friend and her husband gave me permission to share the following information about what it's like for them to raise two children who are going blind. My friend's husband first told me that from a very practical standpoint, he says, my boys will not have vision as adults. And so there are so many obstacles they will face and we are preparing them to develop skills to overcome these difficulties. So for example, he says, they're learning how to navigate public transportation systems all on their own with very limited eyesight right now. They're also in a public speaking group because communication skills, he says, are more important for my boys than for other people. He says they need really good communication skills to compensate for their lack of eyesight. And now I want you to think about that statement in light of the fact that the man that Jesus healed, the one we're talking about, he was blind and mute. No vision, no voice to compensate for that vision, okay? Now back to my friends. They told me, Quote, we struggle as parents watching our sons go through this. We want our kids to grow up and have a healthy spiritual relationship with God. But losing your sight is isolating, and our sons struggle to understand why has God done this to us? How can a loving God allow us to feel this way? They feel disconnected from God, and they ask, why should we have to struggle like this? Unfortunately, the parents say some Christians attribute this to them not having enough faith. And they said, we just pray, Lord, please do whatever you have to do to help our boys on this journey. Now, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of these friends of mine, and specifically the mother of those two boys who are going blind, who herself has very limited vision. And think, how would you feel if you were a ministry to others, if you lived with stress, physical limitations, and this wrestling with God's goodness that blindness brings. And then now I'm going to add some hypothetical first, test, uh, first century stress into the picture. Suppose there's no modern medicine and people are very superstitious and think you have an evil eye. What if people tell you that your children's blindness is because your children are internally corrupt? What if you and your children are banned from worshiping God at church because you have this inner darkness that resulted in your blindness that you deserved? But then suppose your neighbor calls. She says somebody just posted a video of Jesus on Instagram and he's here in Grand Rapids. He's walking through your neighborhood right now. What would you do? Suppose you, that happened, you would quickly hustle your kids out and with your limited eyesight, you would try to navigate through the crowds because maybe, just maybe, Jesus could heal you and your children. And that would fundamentally change your lives for the better. And then suppose you reached Jesus and he reached out and he healed you and he healed your sons. How awesome would that be? And then in the middle of the crowd going crazy and you're rejoicing over God, Suppose a bunch of pastors from your denominational headquarters show up and they pop up and they say, hey, this healing's of the devil, you're of the devil, and this guy who healed you, he's in league with the devil. I asked my friend how she would feel if this happened to her, and she responded, I would be angry. 
I would do what Jesus did. I would tell them that they did not know God and that they prioritized their rules in a bad way. It did not matter to them that Jesus was doing something good for this man. And it's ironic that they could not see it. And this is a profound point, that the people who had physical sight were spiritually blind. They refused to see. They refused to celebrate this loving work of God. And they mistakenly attributed this work to the devil. Now, going back to this man in the Bible, the loving work of God in this man's life meant he was no longer blind, mute, demon-possessed. He and his parents were absolved of their sin because he would be perceived as having his inner light on. This man had hope in a future now. He had work options. He did not have to beg. He could get married, have children. He could support a family. He had freedom now to go where he wanted without asking for help, without being led places. He had the freedom to use his voice to praise God and tell everybody what Jesus did for him. So why couldn't the Pharisees see that something this awesome was of God? Again, this goes back to lines in the sand. As Wally mentioned last week, um, the Pharisees were actually quite progressive compared to the really ultra-conservative Sadducees. But even so, they had a line in the sand that they felt represented God's will, and they wanted to protect this line at all costs. But it did not occur to them that God himself was trying to get them to look up and away from their line and to look at, across the line, at the hurting, blind, deaf, demon-possessed man who was unfairly placed in their minds on the wrong side of the line. A man who was unfairly excluded from worshiping at the temple if he wanted to. Un a man who was unfairly believed to be evil. And God himself, in the flesh, was communicating that sometimes our lines in the sand are in the wrong place. Okay, next verse, the one at the top. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. So he's pointing out the complete lack of logic of Satan trying to undermine himself and cast himself out. How can a kingdom divided like this possibly stand? Okay, next he said, so if Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How can this kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions without first tying up the strong man? Then his house can be plundered. Okay, now, we already talked about the divided kingdom. After he says Satan can't drive out Satan, he asks, by whom do your people drive them out? And when he talks about your people, that word people can actually be um, translated as son or children or students. And it is, in fact, translated that way in different Bible translations. In other words, what Jesus was doing there is saying, hey, Pharisees, if me performing an exorcism and healing this blind and, and mute man is of the devil, then by whom do your sons slash children slash students 
perform exorcisms and healings. Are your students, your sons, your children, perhaps on the devil's team too, huh? And what does this say about you? Obviously a rhetorical question here. Um, the next verse is pretty cut and dry. Jesus is saying, if you have a house guarded by a strong man, you first have to tie up the strong man, and then you can go room by room and find the prisoners and lead them to freedom. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He tied up Satan and freed this man, the blind and mute man, and led him to freedom. Okay, next verse. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy. But blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Okay, but... Hold on, I think we're missing the last part of that. It says, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. So what do we do with these difficult words of Jesus? And these verses actually trouble many people because it sounds like saying bad things about Jesus is forgivable, but saying bad things about the Holy Spirit is not. How exactly does that work? Well, New Testament professor Craig Evans provides some excellent insight into these verses. He points out that this verse states, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Now, we assume Son of Man refers to Jesus. However, Evans points out that before the New Testament era, sons of men was actually a Hebrew and Aramaic idiom that referred to human beings. Therefore, he says, this sentence probably originally meant whoever speaks a word against a fellow imperfect sinful human being will be forgiven, but whoever speaks out against the perfect sinless Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And then Evans adds, so trashing humans is one thing, but trashing the Holy Spirit is another matter. Okay, but this now leads to another question. What exactly does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? And if I think I did that, am I doomed? Well, first, we're going to take a look at the definition of blasphemy. We had talked earlier about sacrilege and that blasphemy is verbal sacrilege. It involves insulting or showing contempt or lack of reverence for God. And it also involves attributing works of God to the devil and works of the devil to God. And that is exactly what the Pharisees did. They showed contempt toward Jesus' healing of the blind, mute, demon-possessed man. And Jesus said that this healing was the work of the Holy Spirit, but the Pharisees said, nope, it's of the devil. In other words, the Pharisees, according to this definition, the Pharisees were blaspheming God, blaspheming God and the Holy Spirit to his face. Um, N.T. Wright, uh, I notice there's a lot of N.T. Wright comments, uh, quotations every week, and I have my own. Uh, N.T. Wright weighs in. He says, Jesus is warning against looking at the work of the Spirit and declaring that this must be of the devil's doing. If you do that, it's not just that you won't be forgiven. You can't be because you have just cut off the very channel along which forgiveness would come. Once you declare that the only remaining bottle of water is poisoned, you condemn yourself to dying of thirst. Now, what he is saying there is, if we choose to act the way that this specific group of Pharisees did, 
If we tell God, hey, I don't believe in you, you are most certainly not God, and I believe that you, in fact, are in a partnership with the devil, well, then you have just cut yourself off from God because you're saying, hey, God, I don't believe you're God. I refuse to worship you, and I'm not looking for forgiveness from you, nor do I believe you have the ability to forgive me on that level because you are working with the devil. You are not God. Um, and biblical studies professor Lamar Williamson summarizes, quote, it is not the thought that one seeking pardon will not find it, but rather that the one who rejects the Holy Spirit will not be seeking a pardon. So, pulling this all together, if you are worried about offending the Holy Spirit, it's because you believe in the Holy Spirit and God and Jesus and their power to forgive. You're concerned about your spiritual warfare, you're concerned about being forgiven, and therefore, because you believe in God and you are connected to God, if you seek forgiveness, you will receive it. In fact, God's amazing grace ensures that there is no mistake in your past that is so bad that you can never escape it. Because when we profess faith in Jesus and his saving grace, and when we ask for his forgiveness, this means that we believe in Jesus alone to save us and give us eternal life in heaven. And that is Jesus alone, not Jesus and prayers, Jesus and quiet time, Jesus and works, Jesus and church attendance, Jesus and saying the right things, or whatever. Jesus alone saves us. Now, in the Bible verses that we have looked at today, there's a big reversal that goes on. The blind, mute, demon-possessed man who was supposedly internally corrupt is the recipient of God's love, mercy, and blessings, and he can see and talk. On the other hand, the seemingly morally upright Pharisees are actually blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. They have completely missed God, and they've had their sight all along. That's the irony. So as I pointed out earlier, even though they considered themselves internally pure, they are the ones who are spiritually blind, and their spiritual blindness came about because they were so intent on protecting God their Jewish faith, and Israel. And the really troubling part about all of this is those aren't bad motivations, are they? Protecting God, protecting their Jewish faith, protecting Israel, those are not terrible motivations. And that's the danger for us as Christians today. We today can become so fixated on zealously protecting God, protecting Christianity, protecting our country, whatever that looks like to you. We can end up losing sight of the people on the other side of the line, of our line. We can lose sight of the fact that there is humanity on both sides of the line and that God loves people on both sides of our line. And this can unfortunately result in us failing to extend God's love and compassion toward people on the other side of the line as well as ours. In fact, we can get so focused on our lines in the sand that we run the risk of being like the Pharisees and telling God himself that he is on the wrong side of our line without even realizing it. So, wrapping this all up, what can we learn from this? Well, first, uh, Bible commentator Craig Blomberg very wisely advises Christians. He says that we should be, quote, extremely cautious about 
attributing the actions of other Christians to the devil, unquote. There's a lot of that that goes on online today. Just spend 10 minutes on social media, you will see that. I could not agree more with Blomberg. As Christians, I believe we all need to have some humility regarding the lines that we have drawn in the sand as churches, as denominations, as individuals, so we can avoid mistakenly attributing something that is of God to the devil. Because guess what? The history of the church is full of these mistakes. And I'll give you just a few examples. The first, most obvious one, is that Jesus himself was mistakenly called a blasphemous heretic. He was nailed to a cross. He was murdered because of this, because of being on the wrong side of the line. In addition, did you know that full immersion adult baptism was once thought to be of the devil? So was translating the Bible into common English so that regular people could read the Bible. That was considered heresy. Salvation through grace was previously considered heresy. And believe it or not, did you know that the idea of the earth revolving around the sun instead of the sun revolving around the earth was once called heresy? And the great uh, scientist Galileo spent the final years of his life under house arrest because he dared say the blasphemous words that the earth revolved around the sun. It was called blasphemy against the church. Countless people through the history of Christianity have been harassed, hunted down like animals, thrown into prison, and executed in very grisly ways for being on the wrong side of lines in the sand that were drawn by people who had good intentions, people who were zealously protecting God. So what is the antidote to this? Well, I think it's important for all Christians, myself included, to admit that maybe, just maybe, the location of our particular line in the sand might need to be adjusted here and there, or perhaps even moved entirely a bit to reflect God's will. Because when we focus too much on those lines, it's easy to start classifying people, putting them into categories, saying, you're in, you're out. And when we do that, we unwittingly can communicate the following message, which is, be perfect. Act like people on my side of the line, and then we will love you. And then God will love you, and then Christians on our side of the line will love you and accept you. But that's not what Jesus was all about. Instead, Jesus communicated the opposite. He communicated... God loves you, and then because you are loved you will want to become more like Jesus. It will motivate you to be more like Jesus who invites us to see and celebrate the miraculous works that God does in our lives and the lives of people around us. And then finally, it occurs to me that instead of worrying about whether somebody is in or out, acceptable, not acceptable, maybe it's more important to care about people's overall posture to God. And what I'm talking about is, are the people we care about, are they facing God and moving toward him? Or do they perhaps have their back to God? Perhaps are they walking away from him? That's, I think, what is really the important thing, not where they're standing in relation to our lines. But the act of simply viewing people in this manner requires, once again, that we look up and away from our lines in the sand, and instead we look at the people that God puts in our lives. And then asking God, please help us to see others as you do. Please show us 
how we can meet others where they're at. Please help us to share your love with those around us, regardless of where others stand in relation to wherever our line in the sand is located. And when we do that, we walk in the steps of our Savior. Okay, so right now I'm going to close out my talk with a very short and powerful video that gets us headed in this direction by showing us what it might look like to see the people around us if we walked around and we could see people through God's eyes. This video shows us what it looks like.
I hope everybody could read those words from the back. Was everyone able to see them? All right. Um, that is, I'm, I'm closing out my talk now, and I just want to challenge everybody to realize that when we walk through life, we are surrounded by people, regardless of where they stand politically, regardless of where they stand from a religious standpoint. Everybody has a story. If we could see their stories, it would be just like this video. And we're going to, I'm going to close in prayer right now. Lord, help us to look up and away from our lines. Help us to identify the lines that we have drawn and please show us the places where they may need to be adjusted. And help us to look up and away from them and to see the humanity all around, regardless of where people stand in relation to our line. Give us eyes to see them the way you see them. Give us ears to hear them the way you hear them. Give us a heart to love people the way that you would like us to love them. Help us to represent you all. Help us to be good ambassadors for you so that when people see us and when people are around us, they will know who we are by our love, Lord. And we thank you for giving us this time to gather together and for the gift of technology that enables us to broadcast this to people who cannot be here with us today. Thank you for all that you're doing for us. Thank you that you crossed lines to come and reach us. Thank you, God, for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.